Welcome to Law Technology Now with host Monica Bay, Editor-in-Chief of ALM's award-winning magazine, Law Technology News. Hear the latest about technology for the legal community. If it's tech, it's a topic right here. Welcome to Law Technology Now and a Happy New Year to everybody. I just cannot believe that we're already in 2012. Uh, Kind of defies logic, but we are. And we have a terrific guest for you today. Uh, But before we get to our guest, I just want to remind you a little housekeeping we always do. There are three ways to access this podcast. You can find us at lawtechnologynow.com, the ALM site. You can find us at Legal Talk Network's namesake site, legaltalknetwork.com. And because we're so cool, we're on iTunes in the podcast library. And of course, we want to start off by thanking our sponsors, PC Law by LexisNexis and Harvest Software. Um, Cecil, this is our second, hopefully, annual podcast discussing the most important e-discovery cases of the last year. But before we start, uh, tell our listeners, if you would, a little bit about yourself in case they weren't here last year and uh, what you're up to at Littler. Oh, thank you. I am an employment uh, uh, and labor attorney at Littler, concentrating exclusively on e-discovery issues. And I work with a team of other e-discovery lawyers, and we really um, help our clients at the early stages of litigation with respect to preservation, litigation holds, all the way through document productions and even trial issues and appellate issues. So it kind of runs the gamut, but it's exclusively discovery. Terrific. And just like last year, we're going to take a look at, at what were some of the most interesting and perhaps in some cases controversial cases. One of the things that jumped out at me as we were preparing your article for our February issue of Law Technology News, which will be available at the Legal Tech uh, Show in New York for those of you who will be there, is that last year there was a predominance of cases by judges who I teasingly called the posse, um, heavily East Coast, Judge Shira Shinlin, Judge Andrew Peck, Judge James Francis, uh, Judge Facciola, um, Judge, I hope I pronounced his name wrong, I always butcher that if I did, forgive me, um, and Judge Paul Grimm, who had what, without question, was the most entertaining and scary case of 2011. But this year's crop of cases um, doesn't appear to be dominated by the judges who were most front and center in the last couple of years. Do you agree with that? And if you do, what do you think does that uh, represent or signify? It's a very interesting issue, Monica, because I think that you're right. The posse um, traditionally has come out with groundbreaking discovery opinions um, that we've all kind of latched on to. And it's not that they've stopped writing. I actually think that the judges in the judicial community have also latched on to those opinions and are now feeling more comfortable um, writing about some of these issues. Uh, I feel that it looks like we're going to have a lot more judges writing, uh, not only in 2012, but also in the years to come. I would certainly agree. And this year, there seem to be four main topics that you've addressed in your article. One is uh, post-litigation cost recovery. The second is proportionality, which has been a really hot topic. The third is the cost of preservation, what what I've dubbed preservation wars, and the final one being spoilation and, and discovering misconduct. 
But if there was one trend this year that struck me as dominant, I'd have to say it's what I dubbed the preservation wars. It seems to me that we have seen the defense bar kind of stand up and put its fists up and start giving pushback to some of the trends that we were seeing in 2009 through 2011. Um, start us off with with uh, uh, Pippins, why don't you? Yeah, well, the Pippin case certainly for 2011 was one of the most talked about cases. Uh, and it started in the Southern District of New York where uh, Magistrate Judge uh, Cott essentially ordered a defendant, KPMG, in a, in a nationwide collective uh, and, and Rule 23 class action to preserve hard drives for about 7,500 potential opt-in plaintiffs. And why that's significant is because they're not actual plaintiffs at this point. So basically what the court was saying was that uh, irrespective of whether or not their data is actually relevant to the litigation or whether they ultimately choose to join the litigation, you must go out and copy and put on lockdown over 7,000 hard drives. And of course, the cost of doing so, not just the physical cost of the hard drives, but also uh, the, the human resources involved uh, is pretty significant. And that raises questions of, of um, if I pronounce this correctly, proportionality. Is that the right way you... No, Monica, you're absolutely right. It really does raise the issue of proportionality. And that's another thing that really concerned the EDD community with respect to the Pippin case, because the judge seemed to suggest that proportionality does not have a place in preservation. And I don't know necessarily if we got the opportunity to speak to Judge Cott, that would really be his view. But the way the opinion works and the way the opinion is worded, uh, it doesn't seem that Judge Cott really appreciated uh, the proportionality argument that KPMG was trying to make. What do you think the ramifications of this case might be? Well, I think there's a, 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 a lot of potential to misuse the case, um, to go into a court and say, well, Pippin says that you shouldn't hear, you shouldn't listen to the defendant or the plaintiff's burden with respect to the preservation of information. What is also troubling and concerning is Judge Cott seemed to suggest that in a class action context, that every potential plaintiff is a key player or a key custodian. And as we know from the Zubalake line of cases with Judge Shinlin, who you mentioned earlier, key custodians and key players have a, have a special significance in e-discovery because we're required to preserve that information really as of right. Really, there has not been a dispute with respect to preserving a party's uh, electronic information or a key witness's electronic information. But by saying, in, in, a, in essence, we have now 7,000 key players, uh, I think Judge Cott may have bit off more than he could chew. Now, you also raise in your article the, the, the um, post-litigation cost recovery and have several cases that are addressing that. Um, walk us through a, a couple of the key points that, that you felt occurred in 2011. This is another very interesting development in electronic discovery case law because a few years ago, the big push was on cost shifting, meaning if the information 
was not reasonably accessible due to its cost or its burden or the burden of production, then parties would go to court and ask the judge to shift the burden, to shift the cost to the other side. And now what we're saying is to the extent parties have been unsuccessful or, 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 or have, have chosen not to go that route, they wait until the end of litigation where they are the prevailing parties. And then they seek to recover the cost of e-discovery, specifically the cost of processing, the cost of converting electronic documents into a particular format or a form of production, um, and adding that basically, in essence, to the bill uh, that they give the court to recover their cost. And there has been kind of a split in circuits. Some jurisdictions say uh, that certain costs are recoverable. The statute is... Uh, makes mention to, to exemplification um, and making copies of, uh, of any material. And I think that that's a real important distinction because those words, any materials, would seem to suggest that, you know, e-discovery costs are also recoverable. Now, this may be a non sequitur, but when they're talking about any materials, does that hint that the the reality we are facing that e-discovery is not just material on your computer, but these days can be anything from video to Facebook postings to uh, 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 smartphones to even voice messages? No, I absolutely agree with that. Any material um, that needs to be converted or uh, process for the purposes of litigation may be, depending on the jurisdiction you're in, fair game at the end of the day um, to seek a cost recovery. Again, some jurisdictions have rejected cost where it goes beyond um, scanning or what the courts kind of deem as the, the equivalent of making paper copies. But the other end of the spectrum, uh, you know, courts, for instance, uh, one of the cases that is discussed in the articles is the Race Tires America case where the judge granted a request for over $350,000 in e-discovery costs. So I think it's going to make the e-discovery bar really think about uh, what they request in discovery before uh, they make the other side go through the hoops and spend the money to process it. Um, I think what this is going to do is drive home the significance of that early Rule 26 meet and confer and its state law equivalent. Cecil, there's an interesting uh, case that addresses this. Will you tell us a little bit about it? No, oh, absolutely. We usually think of e-discovery as emails uh, and documents that are on a computer, but, you know, Judge Kristen Mix uh, from the uh, the District of Colorado uh, had an interesting case that dealt with audio tapes. And, you know, in that case, the she held that the production of audio tapes were not reasonably accessible because of the burden. And what had happened was the plaintiff had requested audio tapes of sales calls. And, and the judge just did the math and said, hey, look, to listen to these sales calls would take 7,716 hours and a person working 40 hours a week would need 193 weeks or four years just to listen to the calls. So I think that's just an interesting you know, kind of um, way to say that it's not, you're right, it's, it's not just the, the traditional emails anymore. It certainly isn't. And I, I wonder if that also, these types of cases may be fueling the recent pushbacks on 
uh, from the defense bar, particularly with the looking to revise the rules. I know uh, last fall there was a meeting in December of the Judiciary Committee, and there's been other other rulemaking bodies that who have been considering whether or not it's time after the fifth anniversary of the amendments um, to start tweaking them a little bit more. Um, do you see any direction going with those two? Um, and I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting the correct name of the primary body. Um, maybe you can help me with that. Yeah, I, I absolutely think that there's going to be um, some further rulemaking or at least at a minimum continued discussion. Um, the last year in September, I believe it's the Discovery Subcommittee of the Judicial Conference of the United States Standing Committee on Rules and Practice. That's and, the one that I couldn't remember. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to the House one, which met in uh, December. Right. Yeah. And they had that, yeah, right. as you know, they had that mini conference, which was really an opportunity to discuss um, the preservation rule. And, and not just the rule itself, but how it would apply and how it would play out in, in a real-life context. Well, we've had quite a lively debate uh, on our LTN website and in our blog EDD update uh, with the defense and the plaintiff bar going back and forth on that. And I'm sure that's going to entertain us further in 2012. We'll take a quick break now to hear a word from our sponsors, PC Law by LexisNexis and Harvest Software. We'll be right back. Tired of all the headaches of running your law firm? Want to spend your time doing what really matters? Then you need PC Law. PC Law from LexisNexis is the legal industry's best-selling matter, billing, and accounting software. It has never been easier to manage your law firm and serve your clients. Get back to doing what matters to you. For a free trial, go to PCLaw.com slash radio. That's PCLaw.com slash radio. Or call us at 800-685-2161 today. Reap the rewards of your billable time. Harvest is an uncomplicated time capture solution used by law firms and related firms like the Bar Association and LexisNexis. Capture your billable time from anywhere. Surprise client call? Get it on record by starting a timer on your computer. Working off-site? Track billable hours from your mobile device. No sticky notes, no hassles. Visit getharvest.com slash law for a free 30-day trial. That's getharvest.com slash law. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960. Or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Law Technology Now. I'm Monica Bay, Editor-in-Chief of Law Technology News with ALM. And we are talking with the fabulous Cecil Lynn. Um, and Cecil, we've been talking about some of the most important cases of 2011, and I want to spend a few minutes on, I think, the case that's probably my all-time favorite case in all of e-discovery. Uh, roll the drums, please, for Victor Stanley versus Creative Pipe. Boy, has that been an exciting case, but tell us a little bit about why it is scaring the living daylights 
out of litigants and is one of the most entertaining cases and turned out to be a vehicle for Judge Grimm to educate all of us on spoilation. The Victor Standard case is a rare gem in any context, certainly uh, any discovery. In 2010, uh, Judge Grimm issued a civil contempt order ordering the defendant, Mark Pappas, to be jailed essentially for two years unless he paid the cost incurred by the plaintiff and the plaintiff's lawyers in kind of farrowing out um, and getting to the bottom of a lot of the um, misstatements he made and a lot of the, the spoliation uh, that he caused uh, in the case. And, you know, the I don't know if we've seen the, the last of the Victor Stanley case, but, um, you know, Judge Pappas actually paid um, the remaining balance of a $1 million sanctions award. So uh, it remains to be seen what, what, what the next chapter is for Victor Stanley. But at this point, he uh, essentially uh, used his get-out-of-jail-free card, if you will. And uh, if if anyone's interested in learning more about this case, it's it defines vitriolic, uh, and it's just, the, the fact pattern is just absolutely amazing. These two people really hated each other. And Craig Ball wrote a couple of wonderful analysis pieces. And if anybody wants the link, they can email me at mbay at com, and I would be happy to send it to you. But I, I think this case probably will go down in the history of e-discovery. <laughs> as uh, terrifying <laughs> to all parties. <laughs> Would you agree with me on that? No, I absolutely do. The, the facts are classic. I don't think it gets any better than, you know, returning a critical hard drive to, I believe, like an office supply store, um, getting your full refund and then saying, you know, it, it, it you know, doesn't exist. Or I believe another real critical gem was the product that, uh, uh, Mr. Pop has had on uh, that he named FUVS, uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> which was uh, you know FU, and then of course the VS stood for Victor Stanley. So I thought it was a case where you really can't make up um, these type of facts, nor nor do you want these types of facts recited to you uh, by Judge Grimm. <laughs> and Judge Grimm took advantage of the litigation to end up drafting some magnificent opinions, one of which, if I recall correctly, was a 12-page appendix detailing some of the spoliation rules across the states as it existed right now. Am I getting that right? Do I remember that correctly? No, absolutely. He he certainly um, did put together the, the appendix, and it's very similar to the appendix that uh, Judge Rosenthal, Judge Lee Rosenthal, uh, put together uh, in a case that uh, is escaping me at the moment. But uh, yeah, certainly very, very useful. Now, we only have a few minutes left, so let me ask you some predictions. Uh, we're, we're in the first month of, of January of 2012. What do you think this year is going to bring us? And um, I'll put you in the spot and ask for perhaps some predictions about what will happen during the year. Well, you know, the first prediction I have is I think, you know, we've all heard the uh, the saying about a the race to the courthouse, if you will. I think we're going to see prevailing parties race to the courthouse, if you will, to get these uh, these these bill of costs awards for e-discovery costs. The other thing that I predict is we're going to see 
um, these issues raised in the Rule 26 conference related to um, not waiving one's right to seek a post-trial recovery of their e-discovery costs. There was a um, an opinion by the Federal Circuit uh, where the court held that a party had, had waived the right to, to seek um, the cost recovery as a prevailing party because they had agreed to cost sharing. And so I think we're going to see, in light of these cases, um, more upfront um, discussions on the actual cost of not just preservation a la Pippin, uh, but also production. I would I would completely agree with you. I, if I was going to predict something, I think I would say that the defense bar may make some significant inroads this year in uh, with some of their staggering figures about how corporate America is so often being um, required to do spend so much money on cases that haven't even been filed yet. Uh, there were, in Bob Owen's report, there were some amazing figures about what Microsoft has had to spend, um, and uh, others have reported GE's expenditures. And I think corporate America is getting a little fed up with this and, and may push back. And that'll be an interesting dynamic, as as it always is in this country. Um, any last uh, advice before I, I sign off with our housekeeping? Well, I think the advice that I give uh, that I gave last year really holds true this year, which is cooperation is key. Early meet and confer with your opponent related to these issues um, really uh, is worth its weight in gold. That sounds excellent. And Cecil, if our wonderful listeners would like to reach out to you, how is can they best uh, contact you? Oh, certainly. The best way to reach me is by email, and it's clynn, at littler.com. Terrific. And as always, it's my opportunity to give shout outs to our wonderful team. Here in New York, it is David Jasper, our producer, David Snow, and Jill Winwer. In Boston, the fabulous Luann Reeb, Mike Hockman, and Kate Kenny. And I always like to remind you to remember that there is no crying in baseball or technology. We'll see you in February. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Law Technology Now is produced by the broadcast professionals at the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening. Join Monica Bay for next month's podcast on the technology issues affecting the legal profession today.